As I studied this week, I struggled to create an introduction to my sermon. As you know, if you've been here for any length of time, I like to use something that's a little bit humorous, but also perhaps gets you thinking along the track that uh, the scripture is going to take us. And uh, this week I just couldn't find that thing. And that's because uh, there, there, there was a sense as I studied this week that, that perhaps this might be one of the most, mm, I hate to use the word holy, but uniquely weighty pieces of scripture and, 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 and thoughts that we're going to spend time on. We're going to talk about the Lord's crucifixion today. And one of my ideas for introduction was to create one of those warning signals that you get at the beginning of a TV show when it says, warning, uh, this TV show is rated mature audiences only uh, because of language or violence or whatever. Uh, This is a passage of scripture that ought to be marked uh, warning. This is for mature audiences because there's going to be violence talked about here. And, And things talked about that are gruesome and repulsive. Uh, in my work with, with the fire departments and police departments, I've seen a lot of gruesome and repulsive things, things that I wouldn't share with you because they are gruesome and repulsive, things that can happen to a human body. And yet, none of that's really much worse, if as bad, as what happened to Christ in the process of procuring our salvation, in the process of procuring your salvation. And so we want to look at that today. We want to look at the suffering of Christ. And the first question that I want to ask is this, why did Christ suffer? Well, or excuse me, what? What did Christ suffer? And that starts with physical abuse. Christ suffered physical abuse. And uh, unfortunately, I'm going to be reading scripture for you, and you won't be able to see it on the screen at this point. I'll give you the reference, and I'll read it for you. But the, the references to Christ's suffering and the things that he went through, of course, are sprinkled throughout the Gospels. None of the Gospels contains all of the account. In John 18, uh, we do see Christ being abused, if you will, uh, physically. But in Luke 22:63 we really see the beginning of the physical abuse against Christ when the scripture says this, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And these were the temple guard. These were the Jewish men who worked to guard the temple, who were under the authority of the high priests, and the Sanhedrin, it says, they mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Turn me down just a tad. They put a blindfold on him and they hit him. And then they taunted him, saying, just a little more. Sorry, we're working with all of the technical things because of the acoustics that are here and because of the lighting and so on. Uh, You be patient with us today. They put a blindfold on him and they hit him. And they said, tell us who hit you. 
Now, would you, would you just stop and think for a minute that you are the creator of the universe who could say, I'll tell you who hit me. The one who just dissolved into a puddle of soup on the floor. But he stood there and took it. Have you ever stood there and took it? It's not in our nature. We like to fight back. And remember that he didn't deserve any of it. Physical abuse. That was at the temple guard. And then in Luke 23... Verse 11, we read about Herod's soldiers. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt, and they mocked him, and they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. Oh, you're the king of the Jews here. Put a purple robe on you. And they continued to treat him in a mocking way and sent him back to where he'd come from, from Pilate. Look at John chapter 19, verse 1. John 19, 1 says in a few words what took quite a while and was a terrible, terrible thing that Christ went through. Luke 19, 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. I want to read from one of the commentators that I wrote, that I read this week, because I think he summarizes this quite well. In scourging, the victim was stripped, bound to a post, and beaten by several torturers in turn. Jewish law set the maximum number of blows at 40, with only 39 to be given so as to make sure not to overdo. The Romans, however, were not bound by any such restrictions. The punishment would continue until the torturers were exhausted, the commanding officer decided to stop it, or was, as was often the case, the victim died. The whip consisted of a short handle to which several leather tongs were each tied with jagged pieces of bone or metal attached to the end. As a result, the body could be so torn and lacerated that the muscles, bones, veins, or even the internal organs were exposed. So horrible was this punishment that Roman citizens were exempt from it. Another commentator wrote this, the first century historian Josephus, he was a Jewish historian who lived in the first century, he wrote of a man whose bones were laid bare by scourging. If you've seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, he did a good job, but not a great job, of portraying the scourging that Christ went through. If he'd have portrayed on screen what really happened, uh, people wouldn't have watched it. Take that whip, and they whip it across the back, and pull it back, and those biting things ripped. And the person was naked when this went on. And all the scripture says was he was scourged. And sometimes when we read that, we just, well, he was scourged, and then they put the crown of thorns, and then this happened, and then that happened, and, and then he died. Unbelievable, unbelievable torment that he went through. 
Look at chapter 19, verse 2. And then the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. We don't know what kind of thorns they used. Obviously something that had a big enough thorn that it would press into the head. There's a mocking element in the crown of thorns. And the mocking element is that it it mimicked the laurel wreath that the rulers of that day would wear. If you've ever seen a picture of a Roman Caesar, for instance, with this crown on his head of, of leaves, the laurel wreath crown, they made one out of, out of uh, thorns. Other scripture also talks about them taking a piece of stick and hitting him on the head while that crown of thorns was on. You ever poke your head on something? You know how that feels? This is after he's been scourged. This is after he's been beaten. This is after he's been awake all night long. The crown of thorns. Look at chapter 19, verse 16. Then he delivered him, Pilate delivered Christ, to the executioners to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went to a place called the place of a skull. We have a replica of a cross here. Probably a moderately realistic replica. Try to pick that up and carry it. We've got a metal base on it. That makes it extra heavy. But even to say it was just that big. After you've been awake all night, beaten, scourged, with a crown of thorns on your head, and now pick that up and carry it down to the river. And do that all through Ferndale while the people are coming around making fun of you. And nobody volunteered to help. Somebody was compelled to help, but nobody volunteered. He might have only been carrying the cross piece. We don't know. He was carrying some part of it after being so badly beaten. After being beaten bad enough or whipped bad enough that some people would have died from it. Look at chapter 19, verse 16. Excuse me, then um, verse 18. Um, And they crucified him with two others with him. The reference here is very similar to the reference to scourging. Crucifixion in that day, according to the historical research, was a form of execution generally used by Rome to punish those guilty of capital offenses. It involved tying or nailing an individual to a cross in such a way as to suspend the body by the arms, resulting in a slow suffocation of the prisoner. Do you know that if you're tied up like this, then your body sags? And you can't perform the function of breathing. Often the crucified man would use his legs for support. You've seen a picture of a cross perhaps with a little piece of wood down there where a person could push themselves up 
and be able to breathe. Often the man would use his legs for support, thus slowing the process of death. There are records of men who hung on the cross for up to nine days awaiting inevitable death. When the soldiers wanted the condemned to die faster, they would break their legs with a heavy mallet, make it an impossible for the prisoner to support himself. When we read the other part of the scripture that we won't take time to today that says they came by to kill them because it was, it was the day of the, the Passover. They didn't want dead bodies hanging, and so they were going to kill them and get it over with instead of letting them hang there and die a little bit at a time. And they came and they broke the legs of the one and they broke the legs of the other one. They came to Jesus, he was already dead because when his suffering was over, he said, it is finished and he died. And so they didn't break his legs. And the reason for that was a, was a prophecy from the Old Testament that said, not a bone of his shall be broken. So instead they pierced his side with a spear and blood and water came out. Commentator F.F. F. Bruce said this, The method of crucifixion is illustrated for us in the bones of a skeleton discovered by archaeologists near Jerusalem in 1968. This man had been fastened to a cross by one nail through each forearm and a single nail through both heels together. From the historical research, it is accurate, as we have seen the, the, the uh, the depiction of Christ on the cross with a nail through each hand or through each forearm, perhaps up here, and his feet together and one nail driven through both of them. The only way that we know his hands were nailed is because later in the Gospel of John, we see him say to Thomas, Thomas, come here and see the print of the nails. It doesn't tell us here that he was nailed on the cross, but we know from that reference that he was. I don't know what it must feel like to have a nail driven through you or through both of your heels. And then to struggle to breathe and to hang there while people walk by. See, sometimes we have a mental image of the cross as being way up high, but it wasn't. It was just right in the ground. And people would walk by and go, Hey, you think you're the king, right? And they would spit on him. You said you can save people. Save yourself. That's how it was. So as if the physical suffering wasn't enough, all of the mocking suffering was ongoing. Now, what's interesting here, folks, um, well, let me just say this. Again, I think that the way Mel Gibson depicted this in The Passion of the Christ was quite accurate. I've heard, I've got books on my shelves that go into great detail about how all of these physical sufferings must have been. And I think they're probably right. But do you know what strikes me from the scripture today? When God wanted to talk about the scourging of Christ, he said he was scourged. He didn't bother to give us a description either of the process or the result. And when he wanted to talk about him being crucified, he said he was crucified. He didn't talk about the process or the result of what it was like for him to be on the cross, as gruesome and terrible and painful as it must have been. 
Why is that? I think it's because it's not the greatest suffering that Christ went through. I think the greatest suffering that Christ went through is told to us more specifically in Matthew 27:45, when it says this, and you know these familiar words. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that would be from, I believe, from noon till three o'clock, there was darkness over all the land. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani! That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That part of Christ's suffering, God tells us about. Because that was the greatest suffering. I may be wrong, and I'm willing to be wrong theologically. It is the death of Christ that paid for our sin, not his suffering. It is all of this that God put on him that was the huge suffering he went through, this separation from God the Father, the greatest suffering of all. How did God the Father separate from God the Son? How did Jesus hang on the cross and somehow be aware that God had had turned his back? How does one member of the eternal trinity separate himself from the other? I don't know. But I know it happened. And during that time, God poured his wrath for sin on Christ. Poured it on poured it on and he took it and he took it and he took it till he said it's finished and he paid for our sin and so the real question that i want to answer today is not what were the sufferings of christ but why did christ suffer turn with me to romans chapter 3 romans chapter 3 Romans 3, verse 25. In fact, since we're turning there and I have the opportunity to do it, let's just back up and and read a little bit more. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, how do we, in other words, how are we made righteous? We are made righteous freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance. God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did Christ suffer? Number one, Christ suffered to satisfy God's holiness. That is this theological word here in verse 25, propitiation. You may have the word uh, satisfaction or to satisfy God's wrath. 
That is the expanded definition. Jesus Christ made it possible, according to verse 26, that God could be holy and the one who makes other people holy. The word propitiation was used in secular Greek to talk about appeasing the gods, that is, making the gods happy. The old English word also means appease. We don't use the word propitiation in modern English today, but it it still has the same meaning. And uh, the NIV right here, by the way, translates this sacrifice of atonement, and, and unfortunately I think this is the place where they get it wrong. It means to satisfy God's demands for righteous judgment. When, when, the two, when the two sin-free people in the sin-free world of, of, of uh, the Garden of Eden did exactly what God told them not to do, they forced a holy God to exact punishment on sin. God said, don't do this, and they did it, and so now God has to punish sin. And for God to do anything but punish sin would show Him to be unholy. He is completely holy and righteous, and he said, don't do this. They did it. If he goes, well, okay, don't do it again. If he were to do that, he would show himself unholy. And so now God has to provide for payment of sin, and human beings can't do it. Sinful human beings cannot offer a righteous sacrifice. And so Isaiah 53.10 says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, Christ, He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The sacrifice of Christ, the suffering of Christ on the cross, was the only way God's righteous demand of payment for sin could be made. And so Christ suffered there in that darkness while God said, I'm going to pour all of my righteous demand for payment of sin on you because these human beings can't do it. Number two, Christ suffered to take away our sin, and that is redemption. Christ suffered to take away our sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, they owed God their lives. God said, if you do this, dying you shall die. They owed God their life. And Hebrews 9.22 puts it this way, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. It isn't the blood alone, but the death that the shed blood represents which takes away sin. That's why John the Baptist said it like this when he saw Christ. For the very first time he looked up and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was a sacrificial lamb, if you will. He was the perfect sacrifice. And the result of that was buying back us out of the sin market. We were redeemed. Revelation 5.9 says, You are worthy to take the scroll, talking about Christ. You are worthy and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people. Hebrews 9.12 says, Not with the blood of goats, and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And Revelation 1.5 puts it very personally. Him who loved us and washed us from our sins 
in his own blood. One of the words that's translated redeem in the New Testament and was used back in the everyday language was used to buy a slave out of the slave market. You pay the price and you get the slave. The other word that's translated redeem in the scripture emphasizes the freedom that results from being bought back. Christ took his blood and paid for our sin so we could be free from sin and walk in freedom with God. Christ had to die to pay for our sin. Number three, Christ suffered to restore our relationship with God. And that is reconciliation. We were reconciled to God through the death of Christ. Adam and Eve talked to God and they had relationship with him. The scripture says they would would walk in the garden and talk to God. We can't even imagine that. And when they sinned, there was a great separation between them. And now, through salvation in Christ, we are reconciled back together with God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Colossians 1.19 says, It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself whether on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And the wonderful result of this reconciliation is given to us in Romans 8.15. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The fact that you can have a relationship with God where you walk into his presence and say, God, Thank you, God, I have a need. That father-child relationship is because of the death of Christ. The fourth thing that Christ accomplished by his suffering that we want to look at is this. Christ suffered to enable us to possess righteousness, and that is sanctification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ suffered to enable us to possess righteousness. The fact that we as Christians can grow in our righteousness day by day by day is the result of the death of Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Clearly, that healing that comes through the stripes of Christ is not about our physical body, but about our spiritual life. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Now, turn with me to Matthew 27. I'm sure that some of the things that I've shared with you today are things that you already knew. Perhaps some are new to you as well. But I want to talk about how you respond to the suffering of Christ. 
And it seems to me that when we encounter God's truth, there are two ways to respond. And one of them is in Matthew 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned to death, was remorseful. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed and went out and hanged himself. Judas realized he had done wrong. He realized it big time. And he was remorseful. He felt bad for what he'd done. And his result was to kill himself. Was he thinking he'd pay for his sin? Was he thinking he'd make up for it? Was he thinking he'd never be forgiven? We don't know. He was remorseful, but in his remorse, he did not do a godly thing. Now, the second example of remorse in the face of failure is Peter. And from Luke 22, we read these words, The Lord turned, after Peter denied Christ three times, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, looked him straight in the eye. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Two men who both failed the Lord. One of them apparently more purposeful in his failure than the other one, but they both failed. Have you ever had the Lord look you right in the eye right after you sinned? I don't mean literally, but you do something wrong and all of a sudden you're aware, oh God, I just did something really wrong. Jesus looked Peter right in the eye. And Peter went out and cried like a baby. And well, he should. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7 talks about a godly kind of remorse. 2 Corinthians 7, 10. In fact, let's back up to verse 9. Now I rejoice, this is the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthians. He had to confront them about sin. I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. In other words, I'm not happy that you felt bad. But I rejoice that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Worldly sorrow is feeling bad about something, like, oh, 
boy, Jesus was killed on the cross. That's too bad. Or like, oh, I did a bad thing. Oh, I've gotten in trouble. Oh, I wish I hadn't gotten in trouble. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, and and in fact, that's the kind of sorrow that Judas had. Judas realized, wow, I've done wrong. And so what did he do? He went out and killed himself. Peter wept. And I think Peter thought he was washed up with God. I do. But later on, he shows up to breakfast by the sea, and Jesus looks right at him and he says, Peter, let me paraphrase, give me the the Lunsford expanded paraphrase. Peter, are you going to live for me? And in the process, Jesus said, look, get up, get going, do the things you ought to be doing, because nothing has changed here. Yes, you did wrong, but you're forgiven. Go on. Godly sorrow produces repentance. And so Peter repented, if you will. Peter said, that was wrong, and I'm going forward. And we see him going forward in Acts chapter 2 on the first day of the church, and he stands up. And not only does he preach the gospel, he looks the crowd in the eye and he says, you killed Christ. Does that take a little bit of courage? I think so. Especially when just, just uh, what would we, you know, 50 days, so let's call it a couple of months before, somebody looked him in the eye and said, you're a follower of Jesus. And he went, no, 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 I'm not a follower of Jesus. And now he's willing to stand up and say, not only am I a follower of Jesus, but you better get right or get left. Because God is coming and you better be right with him. Godly sorrow is realizing how sinful you are and running to the Savior in faith to receive the forgiveness of sins. If you hear the description of what Christ went through for you on the cross, and if you hear the description of what he suffered and what he bought for you, the godly sorrow responds in saying, you know what, I've never believed in Christ but I need to. He is the one who paid for my sin. If you're a Christian, godly sorrow says, you know what? Christ went all the way for me and and beyond what I can imagine, how far am I willing to go for him? When you look at the creator of the world with his flesh torn open, hanging on a cross, forsaken by his father, taking the punishment you deserved, do you feel sorry for being in trouble or do you feel sorry for your sin and sorry he had to go through this for you? The death of Christ isn't like a gory piece in a movie that you can close your eyes and wait for it to disappear and say, is it over yet? And then look up and go, okay, I can go on. The death of Christ stands as a reminder to us to say, wow, I am a sinner and I need the Savior. I am a Christian and I need to be willing to go the distance for him because he went the distance for us. I encourage you today to to look at this repulsive picture 
and to think on it and to have godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to know your truth. Help us to respond to the truth that we have seen today about Christ and his sufferings. Being human and having an inkling about what it would feel like to what go through what Christ went through, it's almost hard for us to understand that the spiritual sufferings were worse than the physical. But they were by an immeasurable amount. Help us to grasp how much Christ suffered and help us to respond with a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. I pray in Christ's name, amen.